Great, well, good evening. I, I would normally say keep your Bibles open, uh, but we're skipping around a bit tonight, and I've pulled out most of the verses that we're going to be looking at onto the screen as we go through. So feel free just to sort of look at the screen and then perhaps check out stuff a bit more widely afterwards if you'd, if you'd like to. Shall we pray as we, as we look at this together? Lord God, we do thank you for, uh, for your word, for the wisdom it contains uh, for our lives, for the way it points us to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray this evening that you would uh, reveal yourself to us in these words, and most of all, draw our hearts and minds back to the Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Great, well, the book of Proverbs is all about living wisely, isn't it? That's what we've been looking at in the past few weeks, living wisely in, in this world. And this evening, we're thinking about living wisely in the area of family relationships. Pretty big topic. But we all have family, uh, don't we? Whether we're young or whether we're old, whether we're married, single, male, female, we're all involved in, in family. And we're all going to have different experiences of, of family life. Some good, some bad, perhaps some painful. Uh, someone once said this, they said they raised their children by trial and error. The children provided the trial and they provided the error. Bit of an old saying that. But Proverbs has got a lot to, lot to say about um, family life. And that's unsurprising, really, because the Bible teaches that family life is not a human uh, idea. It's a divine creation. It's built into the fabric of, of God's world. And in particular, Proverbs says a lot about the two fundamental human relationships. So the relationships between husbands and wives and between parents and children. That's something we're going to be looking at uh, tonight. I'll say at the outset, just don't tune out if you think this isn't relevant for me. That These are general uh, principles of wisdom in any event. And even if we're not in a particular situation right now, uh, we might be at some point in future. I think probably the other thing just to say at the outset is this is a sensitive area, isn't it, fam- family life? I guess mistakes, uh, wrong choices, you know, bad patterns can just be devastating uh, for lives. And some of us will know uh, that, that pain, or we might have caused that pain. But I think rather than beat us with a, with a moral stick, what Proverbs does is it, it calls us to come home to the only uh, wise man, to the Lord Jesus, the only one who can enable us to be uh, the parents, the children, the husbands, the wives that he longs us uh, to be. And we'll see that, uh, I think, as we, as we go through tonight. So husbands and wives, uh, parents and children, let's, let's go. So husbands and wives, firstly, what does Proverbs say about, about husbands and wives? Proverbs says that your marriage will have a massive impact on your life, for good or for ill. So Proverbs 12, 4, A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like the decay in his bones. Wisdom saying a bad marriage will make you miserable. Or chapter 19, verse 13, a foolish child is a father's ruin and a quarrelsome wife is like the constant dripping of a leaky roof. You kind of smirk at that verse, don't you? The kind of 1950s picture of domestic life. But there's painful reality, isn't there, behind, behind those words, which is that there are some marriages where it is almost unbearable to live in the same house as your spouse. 
It's not, it's not just wives that can have that effect on husbands. Uh, this book was written uh, for young men, but the principles in it can apply in many cases across both genders. Husbands can have this effect on wives as well. Proverbs lives, doesn't it, in, in the real world. Some marriages are really tough. But Proverbs also affirms the goodness of, of marriage. So uh, chapter 18, verse 12, 22, he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favour from the Lord. And we heard the great, the great climax of the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, with a description of the wife of noble character that you could spend the whole term looking at. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. Perhaps we're, we can be single and we're sort of thinking, you know, if only I could get married, life would be sorted. We all have those kind of Bridget Jones type moments at times. Loneliness gone forever, life would be great. You know, Proverbs says, well, look, you know, recognize reality. Some marriages are very, very hard. Don't charge into marriage without considering whether it is a wise choice. It could make life a whole lot worse. But on the other hand, Proverbs is saying, you know, marriage is very good. It's a, it's a good thing. I wonder if sometimes perhaps some of us are inclined to be a bit, you know, just a bit pessimistic. You know, no one could match my expectations. I'll, I'll never be able to, to marry. You kind of always back away from commitment without there really being a clear, clear reason. You know, surely I'd be better to forge my own way in life, to marry myself, as some people seem to do in ceremonies. If that's our perspective, we could be missing out on what is really good. But ultimately, marriage depends on God. Chapter 19, verse 14, houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So if we want to be married, we should pray, shouldn't we, that in the Lord's good time, he would provide the right husband or wife for us, that we'd be wise to discern that choice. We might ask, well, what, you know, what, makes, what makes a good, good marriage? And Proverbs gives us, I think, three ingredients for a, a wise marriage, marriage. So if we're not married and we want to be married, these are the things we should be looking for in a spouse. And if we are married, these are the things we should be looking to cultivate, grow in our, in our marriage. What are those what are those things? I think the first is this, it's companionship. That's in Proverbs. Chapter 217, wisdom will save you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who's left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. One of the really interesting words in that, in that verse is the words partner. Because the partner here means the closest possible friends means your best best mate i think we can miss the kind of revolutionary nature of, the, of this teaching because in most of the ancient world marriages looked like marriages that you get in game of thrones you know why do you marry you marry for gaining status for security for property having kids you find friendship elsewhere and for that matter good sex you find that elsewhere you don't get that in your marriage what does the writer of Proverbs say? No. Companionship is at the heart of marriage. Your husband or wife should be 
your closest friend. So I guess if we're considering marriage, I suppose the question is, is this the person I can go through my life with as my closest partner and friend? That's why, isn't it, that if we're a Christian, we're going to want to marry another, another Christian. The foundation of life is to be a life-fearing God. So surely we, we want to be joined with somebody. We want to build a life with somebody. We want to live, laugh, cry with somebody who is fearing God at the heart of their life. Companionship. What about the, the second ingredient in Proverbs? I think it's this. I think it's chemistry. Got three C's here, needless to say. So chemistry, chapter 5, verse 18. 18. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of, you, of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you even be, ever be intoxicated with her love. I think, again, this is the verse we laugh at, but isn't it a great verse, this? Or a couple of verses. Marriage should be all about, should be about mad love, about unbridled passion, about great sex. That's what this, this verse is saying. I had a Christian friend uh, in London a few years ago. He used to forensically analyse uh, relationships or potential relationships. He's saying, you know, drop a list of pros and cons. Are we good match? You know, do we have enough shared experience? Is she holy enough? You know, do we complement each other? You know, sensible things, but he's, he's still actually sadly single. You, you marry, don't you, in large part for love. That's what the writer here says we should do, to be absorbed in an intoxicating passion, romance and friendship joined together. That is a potent uh, mix, commitment, chemistry. I think the final thing, is, is commitment, going back to verse 2, 17. Speaks of the covenant made by the wife before God. A marriage is a relationship based on a binding agreement, a covenant God's expects, God expects a married couple to stay together, to be committed uh, to each other. When I got married to my wife, Nikki, we decided to learn our marriage vows for the service, so rather have the vicar, rather than have the vicar say them to us in advance, uh, and us then repeat them back, we'd learn them and just say them, kind of you know off the cuff, as it were. Needless to say, for my part, it was a complete car crash. In in most respects, I couldn't remember the vows, and I ended up saying at one point, "All that I have, I give to you, and all that I am, I share with you," which is the wrong way round uh, for that verse. And all these bridesmaids were cracking up. Uh, at the side. I'm probably not legally, legally married. But have you, have, you ever, have you ever noticed at a wedding how the marriage vows, they're about, aren't they? They're about future promises. Notice that? So they're not about a declaration of present love, but a promise of future love. Or they're not about how we, how we feel now, but about how we will behave in, in future. So we promise, don't we, to be tender to be faithful, to be loving in all circumstances, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Marriage is about long-term, unbreakable commitment, not just a piece of paper, as people sometimes think. Companionship, chemistry, commitment. These are the things, Proverbs says, the wise man or woman will be looking for, will be looking to cultivate in, in a marriage.
This is the context, if you like, in which husbands and wives can cultivate, can nurture each other, can minister to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, a lifetime together of, of serving, of sacrificing, of opening each other up so that your spouse becomes all that God wants them to be as a person. Friends and lovers committed to each other's future glory. Well, if marriage is at the heart of family relationships, what about parents and children? I wonder what the goal of parenting is, you, you think. I think the, the, the views of parenting tend to change, don't they, over, over the ages. So I've probably the goal of the 20th century, much of the time, the goal was to kind of control your children. So children should be seen and not heard. I remember hearing that phrase from my grandparents on one occasion. I think today the goal of parenting is probably to give your kids as much love and affirmation as you can. Just tell your children how much... You love them, how brilliant they are, and everything will be absolutely fine. At my daughter's primary school at the moment, the top year of primary school, the whole year is a prefect. <laughs> well, I mean, how does that work? That is what you call affirmation. But Proverbs says, what does Proverbs say? Proverbs says the main goal and purpose of parenting is to make your children wise. Make your children wise. So making children wise, what, what is that? In Proverbs, that speaks of the formation of character. So, so the main job of a, of a parent, we could say, is to teach children what is, what is right and what wrong, what is good and bad, what is wise and unwise. So it's an ethical uh, task. And fundamental to right character is commitment to living for God, to trusting in the Lord Jesus. We heard that beginning of the series, chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So for parents, we should want, shouldn't we, to develop in our children a commitment to Christ. That's what really matters above all else, whether our children know and love the Lord Jesus. I wonder if you've got children of any age, is that the top priority for your children? I think many of us would say it is, I would say it is, but do our children know that? Do my three children know that? Or in truth, do we get a bit more excited talking about, you know, the rugby matches they play, the concerts that they play in, the university they plan to go to, the person they intend to marry? Worldly desires, they just take over, don't they, so easily in our thinking. And children will pick up, they'll feed off, our priorities. Our priority should be to affirm our children in the Christian faith. Parenting is a tough job. That is there, isn't it, in verse 15 of chapter 22. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. What's that saying? Children are not born neutral. They're naturally unwise, they're self-centred, they're out of touch with reality. I remember about ten years ago, there was a film, uh, you might have seen it, called Atonement. A really good, good film, where you've got a child at the centre of the film who makes a terrible misjudgment. She misunderstands what she sees an adult doing, a man doing, misreports it, and ruins a man's life, who is then 
imprisoned, a tragic, painful story. Children are out of touch with reality. They misunderstand things. That's why parenting is so difficult. While children need our time, they need our love, they need our coaching, and they need, Proverbs says, discipline. It's there, isn't it, in the second part of that verse. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. Hmm. Controversial, we might think. I don't think we've got time, really, to... That's, that's a good duck, isn't it? To go into it in, in a lot of detail. But I think what this verse is not, this is not a prescription, is it, for a particular type of punishment. The point, I think, is that children need, need discipline and the training should, we could say, fit, fit the child. I think that's certainly been my experience with my three children. Different children respond in different ways. So a stern look, the naughty step, screen-free time, no pocket money, fetching daddy's beer. All these things <laughs> are entirely legitimate um, punishments. But, but whatever it is, children need discipline in order to grow to be People that, the people that God wants them uh, to be. But do you see how crucially discipline must flow from love? Do you see that? Do you notice that in the readings that we had? The model for discipline is God. Chapter 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. God loves us too much, doesn't he, to leave us as we are. And sometimes he lets us go through hard times. We don't understand it. We don't get it. And he uses the circumstances for the overruling of his loving purposes. So through hard times, God is at work nurturing us, shaping us, transforming us into the people he wants us to be. God treats us, doesn't he, as sons and daughters. The Lord disciplines those he loves and delights in. That is the model for parenting. We love and delight in our children and we discipline them too. It's loving discipline. Without delight, without love, discipline just becomes brutal, becomes abusive. We embitter children, but without love and discipline, we just have children who are out of control don't know what is right and wrong, don't know what is wise and and unwise. I think it's hit home for me this week looking looking at this. I think we think parenting goes on forever or sometimes we think, oh, please bring it to an end. You know, sooner is how many years can we cope with this, we might think at times. But if we've got young children, now is the time for enduring impact. Or children of any age, there is scope for impact and modelling Christ. There's so much... At stake, chapter 19, verse 18, discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. Well, finally, what about children relating to parents? I guess this is of direct relevance to many of us here. Chapter 10, verse 1, a wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. What is our aim as, as children? Our aim should be to bring joy to our parents. 
whatever age, whatever stage of life, how do we bring joy to our parents? What is the Bible's command? The Bible's command is that we should honour our parents. That's the fifth commandment, isn't it? Honour your father and mother. That is unconditional. That's whoever they are, whatever they've done, whatever they are like, whether or not we think they're worthy of our honour. What do you think that looks like? What does that look like? How do we honour our parents in a relationship that evolves over a course of a lifetime, different ages, different, different stages? How do we grow in wisdom, we could say, towards our parents? I think to honour our parents is not to treat them lightly, not to treat them lightly, not to despise them or to curse them. It's an unsentimental thing. So a few thoughts. Whatever our age and stage, we give our parents love, time and respect. We remember important dates. We don't simply arrive back home at the end of term, expect a free banqueting and laundry service at our beck and call. We we pull our weight and we, we thank them as our parents. I think secondly, we we listen to our parents. So, so I guess we might think, well, we're growing up. You know, do we do, still do that? I think we listen to our parents and we ask their advice, perhaps especially if we're still, to some extent, living under their roof, under their financial care. We don't shut them out. We don't think, you know, I always know best. Perhaps even if they're not Christian, even if they're not believers, we still, we still listen to them. We, we don't have to agree with them. But our parents are never beneath us. We don't speak ill of them. Chapter 20, verse 20. If someone curses their father or mother, their lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. We avoid treating our parents in a disrespectful manner. I think finally we, we learn to forgive our parents. I guess some of us would have had really difficult uh, relationships with our parents, perhaps more than difficult at times. But we need, don't we, to, to forgive them. Someone once said, 50% of parents are below average. Think about that, it's true. <laughs> um, we, you know, we can't expect our parents, can we, to be, to be perfect. Some parents are so far from perfect, and we feel that. But if we stay resentful towards our parents, that is just, isn't it, going to chew us up. One one of the ways in which we honour our parents is to forgive our parents. To remain angry with them is to remain as a child. So we commend Christ to our parents by the way that we live. I wonder how how you feel from that, that teaching. How does a teaching make you make you feel. I think the danger of Proverbs, isn't it, is that we, we, we sort of treat it like law and, and it just becomes a crippling burden to us. So we, we see ourselves as a hopeless case who fails again and again. We fail that test of wisdom. We just can't get it, get it right. Our marriage is, is not all that we want it to be. We've not been the parents that we wanted to be, and we see that, we think, work through in our children. We try harder, we fail again, we get sucked downwards in a spiral of increasing pressure and decreasing 
joy? What is the answer to that? We need to remember, don't we, that there is only one wise man, the Lord Jesus. We need to focus on Jesus, on his mercy, on his life of wisdom, revealed supremely in the cross. Just some final thoughts briefly as we finish. How can I keep going with a difficult spouse? How can I keep going with a difficult spouse? The answer surely is in chapter 2, verse 17 we looked at, to remember the covenant between God and his people sealed with the blood of Jesus. Jesus came, didn't he, to our earth to take us, messed up you and messed up me as his partners. And we crucified him for it. The Bible describes Jesus Christ as the bridegroom who is absolutely committed uh, to his people, his bride, the church, so committed that he laid down his life for us on the cross. In lots of ways, that's a bad marriage for Jesus, isn't it? It's a marriage that sends Jesus to hell. But Jesus is committed to us despite our unfaithfulness. He goes on loving us despite our unloveliness. He goes on forgiving us and conforming us to his likeness despite our determination to stay exactly as we are. He stays with us, we could say, couldn't we, in a pretty tough marriage. Jesus embodies the ultimate spousal love. We need, don't we, to be able to look at our spouse and say, you've sinned sinned against me, but I have sinned against God. And if that doesn't soften our heart, if that doesn't encourage us to work at our marriages, well, you know, what is going to? How, how can I go on in life if I want to be married and I'm not? How can I go on if I want to be married and I'm not? We need to recognise, don't we, that we will be a poor spouse, we could say, unless Jesus is the ultimate source of love and significance in our life. If we're Christian, Jesus is that person, isn't he? He is that spouse for us. We've been joined with him. And only if we are content in that, can we, will we be the spouse that we should be to another person? So I guess we can turn up at weddings and think, oh, I've got another painful wedding to sit through. You know, when am I going to get married? There's only one person who can give us what we crave, give our souls what they crave. And that person awaits us, doesn't he? There is that day coming, that marriage coming, not an earthly wedding, but the marriage between the Lamb and his church that we read about in Revelation 21-22, where there will be a wedding feast that we will be at and banquet at for all of eternity. That is the wedding that all of us look forward to. Finally, how can we look at our parents and not resent them or not still have them as part of our lives in a way that just is not healthy? One writer put it like this. They said, Jesus lost the delight of his father so we can have the ultimate fatherly delight. Jesus lost the delight of his father so we can have the ultimate fatherly delight. It's saying, isn't it, that we, we can say to parents that they don't, they don't stand 
in the place of God for us. Once they were the source of significance, the source of love, the source of our understanding of right and wrong, but not anymore, because they're not God to us anymore if we're trusting in Christ. Because in Jesus, we have the ultimate approval of the Father. And in the end, that is the only approval that counts. So we can honour our parents, we can forgive our parents, we can grow up from our parents. The Bible says, doesn't it, it says, come, come to the perfect Father. You can say, come home to the perfect, perfect Father. Focus on that relationship with him. Because as we keep that relationship central, that will affect all of the relationships that we have with all of our family members. It's as we follow him, we'll, be, we'll begin to be the parents, the children, the husbands and the wives that he longs for us to be. Shall we pray? Lord, we do praise you for this, um, this teaching in Proverbs, the wisdom it contains for our lives. Lord, for the great wisdom for our marriages, for our hoped-for marriages, for the relationships with our children that we're training and teaching and for uh, the relationships with our parents that go on for many years, in many cases. But Lord, we pray that uh, through all of that, we would be drawn back to the person of the Lord Jesus. Lord, that we wouldn't be uh, sucked into that sense of nothing is achievable. We get stuff wrong time and again, but we look to Jesus and know that he is uh, our redeemer. He brings us home. He's perfect where we can't uh, be perfect. He stood in a place for us uh, to die when we deserved uh, that fate. Lord God, we pray that we would uh, be able to put the Lord Jesus central in our lives, central in our hearts, to put him as our desire above all other desires. As we look to him, as we trust him, so our life would take shape in a way that brings glory to him and builds the relationships we have with our family members now and in the future, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.